Uh, open your Bibles, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. I don't have a lot of time for chit-chat. Let's get going. I got an assignment today, preaching on one verse, and it's going to honestly take me a couple minutes to unpack it for us all in a way that I hope and pray is edifying and, and encouraging to you. Paul says it aloud. I want you to read it aloud with me. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. title of my message today, just touch your, touch your neighbor next to you and say, the title of the message is, no joke, The Big Reveal. The Big Reveal. <laughs> touch the person, tell them it's The Big Reveal. We're talking about The Big Reveal today. And um, forget that. Romans 1, 16, 17. Here's what it says. If you have it in your Bible, read it aloud with me. You might have it memorized. We're going to read it together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Last week, Pastor Steve broke down verse 16 for us, which is the first half of Paul's thesis statement here in Romans. It's, it's that Paul is not ashamed. That means, that means he, is, he, is, he is super convinced in a bold way that he ought to be preaching the gospel. Why? Pastor C broke down three reasons. It's, it's potency, it's purpose, and its conditions are all based upon God. It's, it's the gospel in God's power. It's, it's, it's God's salvation. It's for all people who believe God. And this gospel is experienced, it's unashamedly preached here at Bethel Church, and we hope to inspire you and encourage you to be confident in the power of the gospel as well. Amen? But that's just the first half of his thesis statement. First half. Second half, uh, is, it goes like this. For in it, in it, the gospel that he's not ashamed of, in the gospel that Paul preaches, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here, Paul is describing with a beautiful word picture that plays out right before our very eyes. Paul is describing how in the gospel, uh, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because the gospel is God's power for sure, but the gospel is also that which reveals God's righteousness to us. It's the highest revelation ever. And that's why we title this The Big Reveal. And, and here's what I want us to think about today. Uh, how and what does the gospel reveal to us? How and what does the gospel reveal to us? It's a question we have us before us this morning in this very simple but very packed verse in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And uh, would you pray with me for God to be working as we study this? Uh, let's pray right now. Father, we ask in your name that you would be reaching hearts and reaching our souls today as we consider your salvation. Thank you for your word which guides us. Give us the faith to do with this what we know we ought to do. And thank you, God, for revealing it to us. It's in your name we pray. If you agree with that prayer, say amen. Amen. The reveal. The reveal. Everybody loves a good reveal. A reveal is about drama. A reveal is about emotion. A reveal is about thoughtfulness. Um, this plays itself out nowhere better than in a proposal. 
For in it, a guy gets down, hopefully gets down on one knee if he's doing it right, and then he, he reveals the ring, right? Guys, you remember this moment in your life? Some of you are like, I was going to whittle her a ring later. Dude, you did it wrong, okay? It's all about revealing the ring. And in that moment, uh, she, she's so caught up in what's being revealed about the relationship that, that he loves me and he wants to spend precious, precious money on this diamond for me that, that would signify this is our lives together. It, it's all about the reveal. Paul is in essence saying here in Romans chapter 1 verse 17 that, that the greatest reveal in history is the thoughtful drama that unfolds when we understand what God did in the gospel. We love reveals. For the past couple of years, I've been watching this show. It's one of my favorite shows on TV. It might be one of yours, too. It's called Fixer Upper. Have you seen this show, Fixer Upper? You have? Yeah, because you, you, yeah, we live in the Midwest. That's what we do. <laughs> so if you don't, if you, like, just got off of a ship and you don't know what Fixer Upper is, uh, it's this fun couple from Waco, Texas, and they uh, help regular Texans uh, come to, to terms with the place that they're about to buy it's a really run-down property, and they turn it into a charming dream home. And you watch the show, you see the house before it was purchased. You see all the design potential. Hey, we could do this, we could do this. Knock down walls, put up shiplap, yada, yada, yada. And, uh, and, and then you watch the actual building process happen, and Chip runs through things, and you kind of watch it for some of that. But, but why do you watch it? You watch it for the last five minutes. You invest 55 minutes in the show for the last five minutes. It's so important to us. Why? Because the last five minutes is the big reveal. And here's on this show how the big reveal goes down. Uh, they take the couple who they're fixing this house up for, and they stand them here, and usually they have them like, close your eyes. I don't know why they do this, because when they open their eyes, they see that there's this giant poster of the house that they purchased in its original rundown state, masking the real house that's on the other side of it. And they... Ask this question. Every good reveal has a great question, right? And the Oscar goes to, and the number one seed in the tournament is, and um, will you marry me? Right? They, these are all reveal questions. And they ask the question. They go, uh, do you want to see your fixer-upper? And everybody, even you at home on your couch, you're like, yes! <laughs> and they get on one side of the thing, and the other chips on the other, and they, they, they start pulling it back in commercial break. And you sit there for three minutes as Clorox tries to sell you bleach and you're dissatisfied with your Honda. Why? Because you want to see the big reveal. And you didn't have a TiVo. <laughs> so come back from commercial break. Do you want to see your figure up here? Yes. And all of a sudden, the reveal happens and these, these, these posters part way. And what used to be dead and decaying and decrepit is now revealed to be perfect and remodeled and reminiscent of a dream. Big reveal, it stirs up the emotional element of everyone, the crew. Sometimes you see Chip and Joe get like teary-eyed because their clients are grateful for what, they're do what they've done for them. And the clients are often like hugging each other and crying. And they're like, that's our house. And you're like, you're sitting on your couch at home because you've watched this thing come together. You've watched it all be put together. You know what Chip had to redo to make this house awesome for them. And they love it. And you're just like, all is good in the world. We love a big reveal. That's honestly the first half of Paul's thesis statement, or the second half is, is all about God's reveal in the world. It's how he frames up his argument for the book of Romans. Honestly, 
He's going to claim that the greatest reveal in history was not the reveal of somebody fixing up a house. The, the biggest reveal in history was not who was the number one seed in the Eastern bracket for the 2018 NCAA tournament. The, the greatest reveal is not who won the Oscar. The greatest reveal is not even like who you're going to marry. He, this is the greatest reveal. Paul says the, the, the revealing of the righteousness of God. It's on the edge of your seat type of stuff. And this is what leads Paul to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because when you hear and understand the gospel, you are discovering the greatest plot twist in all of human history. Make no mistake about it. We needed God's righteousness to be revealed from us or to us. We needed God to show us what we couldn't see. Paul is going to make the argument in a couple of verses that without having knowledge of God's righteousness, we are prone to wander and make a mess of our life. And so here's the first thing I want to show you. What does the gospel reveal to us? Well, the gospel simply put, very basic, out of the text, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Everybody say that with me. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Righteousness of God. And... Um, I want to be very careful because how you understand this phrase, the righteousness of God, can tilt the entire book of Romans for you if you're not careful. Um, theologians, they go batty over this precise definition of what the righteousness of God is. Hopefully I can spare you 13 hours of Bible study of, of theologians arguing about this by boiling it down helpfully for you. And if we make the mistake of allowing our theology to inform our Bible reading as opposed to allowing our Bible reading to inform our theology, we will read this phrase too narrowly and possibly miss the whole thing. We don't want to do that, do we? Some of you are like, I don't know, is there, is there a problem? That's a problem! We don't want to do that. We want to be good students of the word. So this phrase, righteousness of God, here's why it's hard, because it has, it has two undercurrents. It's as if it's two undercurrents of the same stream that are flowing in opposite directions. Um, I took some kids out on the Mississippi River once when I was a youth pastor, and the Mississippi River where we used to go, it would flow from north to south, except for one day it didn't. And I was pushing kids out on canoes who were like 10 years old, hoping that the current would just carry them a mile down the river. And all of a sudden, I realized there's two currents in this river, and this one's taking them the wrong way. It is incredibly possible for the same river to flow different directions. We, we know this. Depending on how the tide is and, and what's happening in the topology, topography of the river. And, and this is very true of the book of Romans as well. How Paul uses this phrase, the righteousness of God, depends a lot upon the situation. So there's two currents that are flowing here in Romans. And I want to just break them down for you in a, in a very 30,000-foot level. The first, the first way Paul uses this is broadly a reference to God's saving work in the world. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. First off, it's, it's God's saving work in the world. At the core of the word righteousness is the implication of God's good and just actions and character. God is righteous, which means he does what is just. All throughout the Old Testament, the prophets and psalmists preach of the justice and the righteousness of God, especially as it pertains to dealing with wickedness and evil in the world. At its core, we easily understand God's justice and righteousness through a question that a lot of people ask. If God created everything and is over everything, then 
Why do bad things happen? That is a question that we've all asked at some point. It is a question of God's righteousness. It is a question that puts in suspect God's justice. We ask, how does a righteous God allow unrighteousness in his world? Actually, that's like the theological way of asking the question. Here's what we actually ask in our heart. Does God care at all? Does God care that our world is messed up? Does God care that relationships break down? Does God care that governments go awry? Does God care that kids could go to school and be massacred? Does God care? Are you righteous God or not? And Paul's entire argument in the book of Romans is going to come down to this one simple answer. That in the gospel it reveals a resounding, yes, he cares. Throughout the Old Testament we see God at work along the mission to do something about evil in the world. That infectious rebellion against God which the Bible calls sin. And the gospel is the story of God. About how God chooses to do something unexpected to bring about the remedy for sin. God chooses a people from a particular family, the family of Abraham. And they're not the only ones who are going to be saved, but they're the ones through whom God chooses to bring about his remedy for sin to the world. The way that he's going to send his Messiah to rescue the world from corruption, sin, and death. And God made this promise to his people to bring about his restorative Justice, that, that's essentially what righteousness is. It's, it's the restoration of justice in the world. And through his covenant promise to his people, he sends his son, Jesus. See, see check, check this out. God entered the scene of human history. I, I call it a Trojan horse to the devil. For he sent his son Jesus who was himself perfectly righteous. He had no sin in his life at all. He lived the perfect life. And this was his mission. For the, he came to seek and to see, I don't have it up here. Where'd it go? It vanished again. This is his mission. John, uh, Luke chapter 19 verse 10. That he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And in Mark 10 45. He came not to be served but to serve. And give his life as a ransom for many. On the cross, he bore the judgment of our sins, and the prophet Isaiah foretold of his suffering in Isaiah 53, verse 5, saying, but he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And these are all scenes from Good Friday, which we're going to celebrate here in just a couple weeks. And on Good Friday... The devil thought he won the victory. And the disciples of Jesus thought it was all over. They laid Jesus' body in a grave. They rolled a stone in front of his tomb to mark the place where his body lay. They said upon his tomb, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. May God have mercy on this man's soul. How many people know the battle wasn't over? God had positioned himself exactly where he wanted to be. You see, to, to, to take away the power of death, he had to blow up the grave from the inside out. 
And after just a few hours in the grave on the third day, Jesus rolls from the dead. And you want to talk about a big reveal. You want to talk about a moment in history where, where, where things become seen which we didn't see before. You want to talk about a magnificent revealing of the righteousness of God. Jesus did it on Easter. It was that day when he awoke from the grave and he said to the earth, shake. And there was an earthquake. And the greatest army in the world outside his door fell down as if dead. And that stone rolled away. And angels came down from heaven to be posted at the position where his followers would come and ask, where is Jesus? And they would herald the good message. He is not here. He is risen. Talk about a big reveal. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it's power, of course. But in the gospel, we see the unveiling of what God is doing in the course of human history. He is saving by conquering death. Oh, such good news. But that's for Easter. <laughs> you got to come back. If I've learned anything from Pastor Steve in the series, it's simply, you've got to come back. This is what Paul is saying here. God shows people his righteousness and it's proof that he cares. See, the, the gospel is, in some sense, God's rejection of apathy. The, the idea that some people think, well, God sees, but he doesn't care because he's not doing anything about it. If he cared, he would do something about it. And God has done something about it. That's the message of the gospel, which we understand even today, 2,000 years later. Have you, have you ever wondered how the gospel made its way to Crown Point, Indiana? This is a city that certainly didn't exist 300 years ago on a continent that didn't exist 2,000 years ago, at least in Western thought. The moment that Christ raised himself from the dead, he knew that one day his gospel would go forth to all the nations beyond even what the world thought was possible at the time. And in God's course of history, he has seen fit that his Righteousness has been revealed as if it was a tidal wave extending across the entirety of the earth. Sometimes things being revealed take a while to unfold. It reminds me of the end of that movie, Ocean's Eleven. It's actually not even all that great of a movie to talk about from a pulpit. <clears throat> it's about casinos and robbing people. But if you've seen the movie, it makes the point pretty clearly. Uh, you know they robbed the casino. That's not a spoiler alert. You know it. You just don't know how. And there's this great scene at the end of the movie where George Clooney and I think it's Julia Roberts is sitting down. And, and all around them, the director is cutting in scene after scene after scene of here's how these guys pulled off this heist. And the whole movie is just a, a revealing of the process, a revealing of the plan. And in the same way, the gospel is in one sense a revealing of the process, a revealing of the plan of God by which he is not taking things, but by which he is putting things back together. And in the gospel, we look back at it and we, we see God preparing the world, patiently waiting for the right time. His plan has unfolded before the eyes of humanity. And in the gospel, we see this is how God saves the world. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it intricate? Isn't it wonderful? And the big reveal is sometimes a process, but sometimes the big reveal is also a prize. If you've ever watched that show, The Price is Right, you know, there's all those doors or those curtains and you hear the phrase, show them what they've won. And there's this big reveal, and there's like a Ferrari, and you're like, awesome, cool. 
To that end, we actually understand the second undercurrent of this phrase, the righteousness of God. I told you it's like the righteousness of God used in Romans. It's like two undercurrents in the same stream going in different directions. Here's the second direction. If the first is that God saves the world, the second is that God has it in his power and in his mind to save you. Not just the world. Not just that everything can be put back into kumbaya. But that your life here and now might be changed. See, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed to people, to those who hear and believe the good news. And so it's the righteousness of God bringing with it the idea of God's personal salvation, God's personal salvation. And Paul is going to explain how God makes sinners holy ad nauseum in Romans chapter 3 verse 8 or through chapter 8. But I, I have to point this out, lest I disregard 500 years of church history and the Sola series that we taught here a few months ago and the message that I myself preached back in October on justification by faith. This is the eureka moment. Romans chapter 1 verse 17 is the eureka moment of Martin Luther's life. Martin Luther for a long time considered the righteousness of God as condemning righteousness. This idea that God was so perfect God's standards were so high. Try as I may to live up to them, I can't do it. And so it drove Martin Luther mad trying to confess all of his sins and practice all the sacraments of the church and to try and be as good of a person as he possibly could be. And it wasn't until he started reading scripture and seeing the righteousness of God that Paul talks about so consistently, not as a righteousness that exists inside of himself, but as a righteousness that, as Martin Luther would call it, he called it, Alien righteousness. That's not UFO righteousness or out of space righteousness. Alien righteousness is this idea that what you need, you don't have inside of you. You need it from somebody else that's external to you. You need righteousness that you can't conjure up on your own. You can only be made right with God by the righteousness of somebody else. And it's the righteousness of God credited to those who believe in the name of Jesus. And this, as Paul is going to show us, is how God considers sinners to be righteous. And Luther goes on to understand this is the key that unlocks the book of Romans for him. That God engineered all of our salvation to be one that is thoroughly by faith and not by our works. And the scriptures definitely support this. They reveal to us that the gospel is simply this, that while you were a sinner, like while you didn't have good works, while you didn't have anything good in you, while you weren't able to measure up, while you were in the middle of the thing that you needed to be saved from, Christ still died for you. We ought never become so accustomed to hearing those words. How marvelous it is for Christ to come and to, to have God put the world back together, but also to make it possible for our lives to be restored. Here and now on this earth, in this lifetime, the power of Christ is available through the gospel to restore our lives to the righteousness of God. We are sinful, but Jesus, the innocent son of God, who is uniquely qualified to pay the penalty for our sins, he died on the cross for us. And you can boil down the gospel into just four words. Jesus in my place. I used to serve with a pastor who'd say it in three words. He'd always say, him for me. 
theologians say two words. They say substitutionary atonement. You can just use one word and it's awesome. What else do you say? But that is mind-blowingly awesome that I don't have what I need, but God in his wisdom through Christ on the cross died in my place so that somehow when I give him my sin, he gives me his purity. And in the mind of God, he looks upon those who have faith in Christ and does not count their sins against it, but looks upon the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and says, you believed in the right sacrifice. I count you as righteous in my sight. That is the gospel. In another part of scripture, Paul talks to another church about the same thing, saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This would have struck the Jews of this day as odd because the way that they had built in their, their system to earn righteous favor with God was the temple system. They had this all figured out. They had a, a means by which their religion provided for them a way to atone for their sins by bringing an animal to the priest, by, by, by putting your hand on it and transferring your sins to this animal, and then by sacrificing this animal on the altar to God. This was the daily repetitive process to atone for your sins. And Paul makes the argument in Romans that no longer do we have to live by religious systems of the law. We are free in Christ to receive salvation from him once for all because of his sacrifice. Paul says, this is revealed to us from faith. Look at verse 17 again in your, in your Bibles. Verse 17 of chapter 1. The righteousness of God is revealed. These four words are crucial. From faith for faith. Say it with me. From faith for faith. This is the marvelous doctrine of justification by faith. Justification that the guilty sinner is being declared by God the judge. That they are innocent because they trusted in Jesus' perfect life and perfect death. And this is all by faith. Not by anything you've done, but simply because the gospel has been revealed to you and you have the prize of salvation. And that's the righteousness of God that's revealed in the gospel. But Paul shows us in these words that there's another revelation of the gospel that shows us that it's this. It's very simple. It's that the gospel reveals God's requirement of faith. How do you get this righteousness? Well, you believe And don't let the simplicity of that fool you. It's incredibly complex. Just like in verse 16, you are saved no matter who you are or what nationality you are, if you believe the gospel of God. Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That means today you live moment by moment believing God is who he said he is, has done what he said he has done, and will do what he said he will do. It takes faith, doesn't it, to believe that righteousness has come down from heaven to earth and then into your life. The great revelation of the gospel that all you and I need to do is embrace this message as truth, to believe God at his word, to trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this is why Paul can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because in it, the, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. 
Why is that an honorable thing? Why is that not an ashamed thing? Well, here's why. In one, one sense, Paul's saying, it's from faith for faith, which means it's entirely made from faith. There is nothing in me that could have earned this faith. This faith is a free gift for anyone who, who would believe. I don't have to be worried about me proclaiming the truth of the gospel to you today and you shaming me for it. Why? Because the same offer that I've received is available to you too. This is a universal offer. But you got to believe. And we say, well, how do we believe? And this is where it gets a little complicated for us. I mean, people these days who don't understand the message of the cross, they don't understand the resurrection of Jesus, they don't understand what church is about, they don't understand faith. And if we miss the from faith for faith part of Paul's message here, we are led to believe that our own actions can do it for us. Here's what I mean. If you don't understand how essential faith is to the Christian life, you will make one of two errors. You will either believe subconsciously that you can be good enough on your own by your church attendance, by showing up to church today of all days, daylight savings time when you deserve an hour to sleep in. You're like, I'm here, aren't I, God? And by your charitable contributions, by your community involvement, by your virtue, you can say to God, I believe I deserve eternal life. You think you can conjure up your own righteousness. But the equal and opposite error is made more frequently, I would say, where people believe that by their actions and what they've done in life, they have disqualified themselves from being saved. If only God knew what I'd done. If only I could forgive myself first, then I, I could do something about this. If only God knew that I'm addicted to alcohol. If only God knew that I'm a terrible husband. If only God knew that I've been a terrible father. If only God has known how I've cheated. If only God knew how I lied, then, then he wouldn't let me in. But friends, here's the beauty of the gospel. Listen. No matter your attitude or your behavior, God extends the offer of forgiveness to you. And it's an offer not based upon what you've done. He already knows you don't have what it is that you need. And so he gives it to you in faith. You're like, okay, wait, wait. How do I get faith? Well, it comes from faith. That's what Paul's saying, from faith for faith. And you scratch your head and you say, it's too early in the morning for me to understand this. And Paul, in Romans chapter 12, is going to talk about how we have each received a measure of faith as a gift from God who himself is faithful. So, so this phrase, I, I want to just situate it for us because we use the phrase from ashes to ashes, dust to dust to describe this eternity or this entirety of a person's life here on earth. And this phrase from faith for faith right in the middle of verse 17 suggests a sense in which we possess God's righteousness entirely by faith. Our salvation is from first to last a salvation by faith alone. That's absolutely true. But I, I think we can also understand this phrase from faith to faith within the larger story of the gospel where God in scripture is called the faithful one who is righteous and true. And God has demonstrated his faithfulness to his people by sending Christ to the world to bring about his promised salvation. 
So it's possible that this is what Paul has in mind here, that God, the faithful one, has been faithful to us through his revealed righteousness so that we may have faith. From faith or from the faithful one, we receive faith in us. And so how do you get faith? Well, it comes from faith. You're still scratching your head. You're still like, this sounds like philosophy class back in college. Can you help me out? And I'll give you a verse in a TV show, okay? Ephesians 2, 8 says that it's by grace we are saved through faith and it's not from our own doing. It is a gift of God. God knows that we can only embrace the gospel by faith and so he graciously gives us the faith that we need, which is himself. So that's the verse. Here's the TV show. I just got to go back to Fixer Upper. This is like the Fixer Upper message. Um, I watch this show. You guys, you guys do watch this show, right? You've seen the show? Okay, so I watch this show, and here's the thought that I have in my heart. I watch this show, and they get to the total end of the, of the show, and I think to myself, man, I kind of feel like this. I'm like, man, I kind of wish Chip and Joe would do that for me. <laughs> like, here's my dream, right? It's to watch the show. And they'll be building a house they don't even know who it's for. And they get all the way through the 55 minutes of production and everything, and they are ready for the big reveal, and they cut to commercial, and my doorbell rings. <laughs> and I go to the door, I open it up. There's Chip and Joe and a film crew right there on live TV. And they shake my hand. They say, Dan, you don't know who we are, but we've been watching you. I, wait, that's what I say to them. Um, but we've done something for you. We know a little bit about you, Dan. We know you kind of like to dabble in a little home improvement. We know you're a DIY guy. But let's, let's call a spade a spade, man. You know you don't have it in you to produce something like we can produce. You can't build a house as good as I can build you a house. So why don't you come with us? And so they pulled me out of my house, reluctantly, of course. And they dragged me across the street. And there in front of my eyes are two billboards with a trashy house. And they stand me down. And they say, Dan, would you like to see your fixer-upper? And if this ever happened to me, I would pee my pants. <laughs> I feel like, yes, come on, let's go. And they would pull back the curtain. And there in front of me would be the most beautiful, charming craftsman home with a wraparound porch that I didn't even know I needed until just then. <laughs> They'd say, do you want to look inside? I go, yeah, sure. Let's, of course. What's happening? I walk inside and they'd be pointing out all these little details that it left to myself. I wouldn't see them. And they'd walk me through and at the end of it they'd say, well, what do you think? That's awesome. You guys are amazing. What do you mean what I think? This is unbelievable. I say, well, do you want it? I say, yeah, how do I get it? I say, well, it's yours. We paid the mortgage. We did the remodeling. And you just got to live here. Say, oh, awesome. Now, here's a question for you. Is my dream selfish? Yeah, it's totally selfish. <laughs> Absolutely selfish. Like, I would love a house built by them. Part of why I'm giving this message is I hope one of you will take a copy and send it to them. 
This is exactly, though, what God has done for us. While we as humanity didn't know what he was doing or even how he would do it, God was and is at work putting the world back together by his righteousness, knowing that we're all trying hard, but we can never do what he can do. We can never measure up to his perfect standard. And in his, in his justice, he wants to offer us new life as a gift. And so here's what God did. He sent his son, the carpenter, to do the demo work. And he paid the price for us. And he completes the work that the Father sent him to do, satisfying God's wrath. And, and Jesus stands us before the throne of God and asks us who believe in him, are you ready to see your new abundant life? To which we reply, absolutely, of course. What does it look like? And he unveils for us a picture of himself. Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed that you and I can receive and be united with Christ and be reborn in the image of God, transformed into Christ's likeness. That's what God does in us. And we ask him, how do I get it? And this is where I have to kind of move back to my illustration of the house. My hypothetical situation for now, hopefully real situation later. How do I show that I've received a house from Chip and Joe? I move in. I get all of my junk from my old house. I drag it across the street into my new house, and I say sayonara to my old way of living. I get out of that dump, and I move into the place that was designed and created for me so that when I wake up in the morning, I wake up in that house. And when I leave the office, I, I decide to drive my car to that house. That's the house that they gave me. And I'm not worried about wondering if they're going to change their mind and give it to somebody else. I have faith that they gave me this house and this is my house and I show that faith by living there. I'm not worried I'm going to lose the house. There's no mortgage. Complete gift. Couldn't lose it if I tried. And all I have to do to receive their home is to live there. And in living there, I show that I have faith and it's mine to possess. Now listen, I didn't build it. I didn't pay for it. But I enjoy it. And this is what Paul says in the book of Romans, in Romans 1.17, that the righteous will live by faith. It's not a shame of the gospel because in it, God gives us his faith that we might believe in and experience new life that we might live in it. The ones who are righteous live by faith, which means your life changes in a way where you believe God is making all things new around the world, but also in your own heart. You believe God looks upon you and sees Christ's righteousness. You celebrate the fact that this gift of faith comes from the faithful one himself. So I can't preach this message without asking you this question. Has the gospel been revealed to your heart so that you could see the righteousness of God and embrace it by faith? Listen, you don't need to go anywhere else except for the cross of Jesus for forgiveness. I'm a pastor. People often feel they need to confess their sins to me, but can I tell you who it's better to confess to? It's Christ. He is the ultimate priest. He is the giver of all good things. He is the restorer of the world. And he is the gospel that reveals God's righteousness in the world 
and in you. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. For in it the righteousness of God, his saving activity in the world, and how he saved me personally is revealed from faith, for faith, so that we might walk out his righteous ways of living by faith.